Chapter 7 of Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail by Ezra Meeker and Howard Driggs. Chapter 7 Indians and Buffaloes on the Plains. Our trail led straight across the Indian lands most of the way. The red man naturally resented this intrusion into their territory, but they did not at this time fight against it. Their attitude was rather one of expecting pay for the privilege of using their land, their grass, and their game. As soon as a part of our outfits were landed on the right bank of the Missouri River, our troubles with the Indians began, not in open hostilities, but in robbery under the guise of beggary. The word had been passed around in our little party that not a cent's worth of provisions would we give up to the Indians. We believed this policy to be our only safeguard from spoliation, and in that we were right. Our women folks had been taken over the river with the first wagon, and had gone on to a convenient camp site nearby. The first show of weapons came from that side of our little community, when some of the bolder Pawnees attempted to pilfer around the wagons. No blood was shed, however, and indeed there was none shed by any of our party during the entire journey. Soon after we had left the Missouri River, we came to a small bridge over a washout across the road, evidently constructed by some train just ahead of us. The Indians had taken possession and were demanding pay for crossing. Some parties ahead of us had paid, while others were hesitating, but with a few there was a determined resolution not to pay. When our party came up, it remained for that fearless man, Macaulay, to clear the way in short order, though the Indians were there in considerable numbers. "'You fellers come right on,' said Macaulay. "'I'm going across that bridge if I have to run right over that engine settin' there.' And he did almost run over the Indian, who at the last moment got out of the way of his team. Other teams followed in such quick succession, and with such a show of guns, that the Indians withdrew and left the road unobstructed. Once I came very near to getting into serious trouble with three Indians on horseback. We had hauled my wagon away from the road to get water, I think, and had become separated from the passing throng. We were almost, but not quite, out of sight of any wagons or camps. The Indians came up ostensibly to beg, but really to rob. They began first to solicit, and afterwards to threaten. I started to drive on, not thinking they would use actual violence, as there were other wagons certainly within a half mile. I thought they were merely trying to frighten me into giving up at least a part of my outfit. Finally one of the Indians whipped out his knife and cut loose the cow that I was leading behind the wagon. I did not have to ask for my gun. My wife, who had been watching from within the wagon, saw that the time had come to fight, and handed my rifle to me from under the cover. Before the savages had time to do anything further, they saw the gun. They were near enough to make it certain that one shot would take deadly effect. But instead of shooting one Indian, I trained the gun so that I might quickly choose among the three. In an instant each Indian had dropped to the side of his horse, and was speeding away in great haste. The old saying that, almost anyone will fight when cornered, was exemplified in this incident but I did not want any more such experiences, and consequently thereafter became more careful not to be separated from the other wagons. On the whole, we did not have much trouble with the Indians in 1852. The great numbers of emigrants, coupled with the superiority of their arms, made them comparatively safe. 
It must be remembered also that this was before the treaty-making period, and the Indians of the Plains were not yet incensed against white men in general. Herds of buffalo were more often seen than bands of Indians. The buffalo trails generally followed the watercourses or paralleled them, but sometimes they would lead across the country with scarcely any deviation from a direct course. When on the road a herd would persistently follow their leader, whether in the wild tumult of a stampede or in leisurely grazing as they traveled. A story is told, and it is doubtless true, of a chase in the upper regions of the Missouri where the leaders of the buffalo herd, either voluntarily or by pressure from the mass behind, leaped to their death over a perpendicular bluff a hundred feet high overlooking the river. The herd followed blindly, until not only hundreds but thousands lay struggling at the foot of the bluff. They piled one upon another till the space between the river and the bluff was bridged, and the last of the victims plunged headlong into the river. Well up on the Platte, but below Fort Laramie, we had the experience of a night stampede that struck terror to the heart of man and beast. It so happened that we had brought our cattle into camp that evening, a thing we did not usually do. We had driven the wagons into a circle, with the tongue of each wagon chained to the hind axle-tree of the wagon ahead. The cattle were led inside the circle, and the tents were pitched outside. Usually I would be out on the range with the oxen at night, and if I slept at all, snuggled up close to the back of my good ox, Dandy. But that night, with the oxen safe inside the enclosure, I slept in the wagon. William Buck and my brother Oliver were in a tent nearby, sleeping on the ground. Suddenly there was a sound like an approaching storm. Almost instantly every animal in the corral was on its feet. The alarm was given and all hands turned out, not yet knowing what caused the general commotion. The roar we heard was like that of a heavy railroad train passing at no great distance on a still night. As by instinct all seemed to know suddenly that it was a buffalo stampede. The tents were emptied of their inmates, the weak parts of the corral guarded, the frightened cattle looked after, and every one in the camp was on the alert to watch what was coming. In the darkness of the night we could see first the forms of the leaders, and then such dense masses that we could not distinguish one buffalo from the other. How long they were in passing we forgot to note. It seemed like an age. When daylight came, the few stragglers yet to be seen fell under the unerring aim of the frontiersman's rifle. We were lucky, but our neighbors in camp did not escape loss. Some were detained for days, gathering up their scattered stock, while others were unable to find their teams. Some of the animals never were recovered. When not on the road, the buffalo were shy, difficult to approach, and hard to bag, even with the long-range rifles of the pioneers. But for over six hundred miles along the trail, a goodly supply of fresh meat was obtainable. End of chapter 7